Okay. Welcome, listeners, to Yeah Aha with Lisa and Phil and our guest host, Aaron Leckinger. And this week, we're talking to Frank Sapiro, who has written quite a few police procedural type books. Yeah, very um, prolific. He is a uh, police officer. He's also been a trainer. And now he is an author. Let us swap and team, we have, I uh, Each of us read a different one of his books, and Philip actually read two of them. And as our listeners may know, Philip is not the most prolific reader in the family. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted welcome, to get, Frank. Welcome, Frank. And Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to get yeah, I wanted to get a taste of because Frank writes from two different perspectives. Three. Law yeah. enforcement mm-hmm. and the uh, um, the lawless side as well. So So uh, law and crime. Yeah. Criminal yeah. and uh yeah. Right. And I'm I'm kind of predisposed more to the lawlessness, I guess, yeah. because I like uh, you know, Godfather and uh, Goodfellas and the, uh-huh. you know, Casino yeah. and those type of movies and right. stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but I, I enjoyed both books. Johnny Brasco. Yeah. yeah. And they're they were first books in uh, both were the first books of trilogies. So I might mm-hmm. dive back into the, yeah. the trilogies. Mm-hmm. You know, the I am two, interested two, in two. the characters from uh, the book that I read, which is Under the Raging Moon. And there's two more books. Now, do the characters continue in the other two Actually, books? actually, there's uh, seven total, and I'm okay. working on number eight oh. right now. So okay. that's that's a pretty long series. Uh, that's the longest series I've got right now. So, but it does stay. It, it visits those characters again. Yeah, it sticks with the uh, you know the River City series has an ensemble cast of characters, and at times one character or another will will come to the right. forefront, right. and the others will be in more of a support role. But then in the next book. Um, you know, they might shuffle positions a little bit and occasionally a new character c- comes in, uh, just like life, right? Like life, yeah. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but the, but the majority of those characters that are in the first book, um, you know, I'm still writing about many of them in the, in the eighth book. Great. Good. So there's character development. Um, oh, yes. and one thing, one thing that, um, there are times when you'll be reading a book and it'll go back and forth between characters and the juxtaposition isn't clearly delineated. And I don't always like that. I'll, it won't keep me from reading the book, but it definitely takes some points away, shall we say. And you do a very good job of maintaining the characters. So You're talking about the, jumping between characters and right, and, right. And, you know, like like Winter's voice versus Katie's voice versus you know Capriva. Yeah, Capriva's like I thought Capriva voice. was the you know for a while there I thought well this is clearly the protagonist of this story. <laughs> but this I think really the, so did I. <laughs> I think the Los Angeles police are the protagonists, if you will. Well, yeah, it has more of a format, like when you think of The Wire. Think of all the different characters and subplots and things that are How going they... on in The Wire, and then it's kind of intertwined. Um, that's a immersive type of storytelling, mm-hmm. I think. And kept yeah. me turning the pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually say Hill Street Blues or NYPD Blue for people to get an idea, or Southland. Those are yeah. all shows that I think are are kind of similar um, you know, River City is a very thinly veiled Spokane, oh, Washington, yeah. which is where I did my policing before I retired. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's I was different. going to ask if you had a background in Spokane because that's where my book was set yeah. that I read. Yeah. 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 For sure. I was a police officer there for 20 years in a day and, um, and I lived there growing up. I lived there until 2016. Um, and that's so, full retirement 20 years in a day. Well, yeah. I mean, kind of it, it's, it, you can't draw your retirement in the state of Washington until you're at least 50 and then only with so you, a, uh, so you're fully vested. And, 
yeah, you reach a point of full vesting and, and, and the cost of living allowance in between when you finish and when you draw is, is, is kicks in when you're 20 years. So it's pretty important to hit that 20 year mark. Um, and, and I was 45 when that, when I hit my 20th year and I'd been trying to position myself to be able to quit working and, and, and write full time. Um, but I probably wouldn't have done it if I also didn't have a, a, a tyrant chief at the time who came in and was kind of a wrecking ball. And I just didn't agree with anything that he was doing and how he was treating people and, and, and me and, and, uh, more importantly, the, what he was doing. And so I ended up, you know, this is in Spokane. Yeah, this was in Spokane. Uh, you know, I was kind of in a position where I kind of, they thought he thought I had two choices. I could either be a hammer for him and, you know, slam people the way he wanted them slammed, or I could be put on a shelf and watch it happen. Um, neither appealed to me a whole lot. So I, I, I chose a third choice, which was to retire. Um, and after that, I, I taught law enforcement for about, uh, leadership for about four years, uh, for the uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police. It was a pretty cool gig. Got to travel all over the U.S. and especially Canada. I kind of became the Western Canada guy for that, um, program for a while. And, uh, and I love Canada. It's a great country. So, uh, so that was kind of cool. But, uh, but yeah, that's my background in Spokane. And that's why I would say not the books I've collaborated on, uh, you know, happen elsewhere a lot, but most of the books I write happen in, have happened in Spokane or River City. Now, uh, I do have a question. Is there actually a Jackson and Cincinnati? intersection yes yeah. yeah yeah i had a, a reader attention when cincinnati is mentioned <laughs> yeah because antennas yeah. Go up. yeah because what oh he said our antennas their antennas go up oh. they're in cincinnati yeah. oh they're in cincinnati i've been yeah. to cincinnati yeah. you have a wonderful zoo there oh, um, yes we do you know right that's one of the things i think i'm in i'm in thousand oaks california by the way yeah. oh I'm, you are i'm guessing you're spokane no i'm in central oregon uh um, oregon okay yeah yeah uh, but you know, we just got to talk about places and that's one of the things I think that attracts some readers to, uh, to stories that are set in a particular place, especially if it's their hometown, um, because they, they know what Jackson and Cincinnati looks like. You know, I had a reader in fact, who lived near that intersection and he went out and he stood in the intersection. He's like, this is where a particular event in, in the first book happened. You know, this is it right there on that, you know, on that asphalt. And, uh, you know, you told me about it at, at a book signing one time, which I, I mean, as a writer, somebody tells you they read your book, you're, you're, you're really happy. And they tell you they got excited enough to go out to one of the locations right. of a big event. Yeah. And then yeah. now you're thrilled, you know, and so it's like a feeling of serendipity or something. Yeah, it was, Man. it was great. You got a legit got fan happy. right there. Yeah. Yeah. I get that feeling about historic places, the things that are important, you know. Yeah, um, I, I like to travel. Philip does not. Philip likes history. I'm open to learning history. So most of our vacations have involved someplace with history. Yeah. That's Love true. history. Yeah. yeah. That's my undergraduate I, degree, actually, is in history. And uh, it's one okay. of my favorite subjects. Yeah. We, we went to uh, Appomattox Courthouse. We went mm-hmm. to... Um, uh williamsburg colonial williammsburg uh we went to see the ships but Dodger they were Stadium. actually not there yeah. 
Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium <laughs> part of history. That was the history portion <laughs> of our most recent vacation that where we went and visited Aaron uh, in LA. Yay. Yeah. Oh, I took them the all kinds family. of crazy places. Mm-hmm. We went to the Spawn Ranch where, where yeah. it used to be. Spawn Ranch? Well, yeah. 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 We looked over they a day. <laughs> they had they had they had some dark vacation uh, goals. They wanted to stay in haunted <laughs> hotels and yeah, they went to yeah. old Vegas and oh wow had a good old time. Rodic yeah. Heritage Museum. We were in the haunted <laughs> hotel, but uh, there was only one handicap room in the actual haunted hotel. Uh, that's and, right. You had uh, to go to the and it was you had to go to the just loud hotel I, instead of haunted. Yeah, I, I'm using a wheelchair, so yeah, we had to go to a different. But it it was a much nicer hotel. <laughs> Yeah, the Apache. It was in the same building, but it was a different, you know, yeah. The Apache Hotel, I don't know. It was very picturesque. It might be haunted by bad furniture and Mm. strange stains on the (laughs) floor. Yeah, they had the old, it was very old fashioned vibe. You could imagine. So no, no ghosts for you guys. I did, I I never did ask really about ghosts. You didn't come across them all. Yeah. <laughs> little well, imagination you can figure loud yeah, noises you can or summon them up yeah we weren't there long enough we couldn't even get the wheelchair into the room you know because what? they gave the handicap room to someone else because we didn't get there until after uh midnight yeah yeah it was small and noisy yeah but the thing i noticed about the thing i noticed about your books and having read mm-hmm. two of them is yeah if, you, if you're a fan of action these books are for you because mm-hmm. there is a lot of, uh, I'm, my mm-hmm. presumption is you didn't see as much action, action in a particular week as these people do <laughs> in, in your no. stories. But, um, well, but I mean, you know, here's the thing. There's like maybe you're not covering like two or three ships. You're covering a ship. So like Katie goes to a domestic on one of her ships. Well, and there's a thread that goes through it. The, yeah. The, 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 but, and, and the action is because they're switching. We're switching between people. But the homicidal yeah. robber yeah. and under under yeah. a raging moon, the homicidal mm-hmm. robber was the common thread that, that weaved through the first. Right, right. So I'm wondering how much action does, I mean, how often does a cop have to pull his gun? You know, I mean, what kind of, you know, frequency is, is it to a violent confrontation like that? I think in Spokane more than a lot of other places. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you that it, in all the fiction, it's, it's, uh, it's condensed and it's amped up for the purposes of storytelling and, and the purposes of fiction. Um, a lot of people have asked at times, like, what's the most realistic cop show you ever saw? You know, they, they want to hear my thought on that. I heard and, the answer is Barney Miller. <laughs> and actually that has been my answer for a long time. And it's, it's probably still true. Uh, but for dramas, um, I, I tell people Southland, um, which, that, which that was your answer to Barney Miller. Yeah, it was absolutely for the longest time, Barney Miller. And, and if I had to pick one, I'd still pick Barney Miller just because it, it really captures the, the more mundane elements and, uh, of, of policing and how infrequent the high intensity moments are. Um, but for drama, going back, always... going back to middle school, Phil and I are both great lovers of Barney Miller. Oh, oh yeah. Oates and mm-hmm. I'm a Dietrich yeah. man. Yeah. Dietrich. Oh my Dietrich. God. Dietrich was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but for dramas, I always say Southland because even though those seven or eight characters, it's it's not realistic that all the things that happen to those seven or eight characters in five seasons would happen to those seven and eight or eight characters. It is fairly realistic that over those five years, all of those events would have happened to somebody in a department the size of Los Angeles PD. And, and so for the purposes of storytelling, it gets condensed down to 
you know, six or eight characters going. They through. cut out the mundane jaywalking tickets. And yeah. And maybe one thing happens to this person and that's mm-hmm. it. Well, I we're not going to introduce a character that. for one thing. <laughs> we're going to have right. that one thing and this one thing and that one thing. And these two things over here all happen to one character because then we, because we know that character. And that's, that's what I've done in, in the River City series and, and in all my books, actually. You kind of I, have to. I, to answer, to answer your, your question, Phil, I, I mean, drew my gun. That might happen maybe once a shift because you drew your gun sometimes, you know, if you're going to search a building or as a precaution for certain events, mm-hmm. um, drew my gun in response to somebody's actions, you know, that were threatening far less frequently than that. Um, I only fired my gun once in, in, uh, in the line of duty. Um, and, and that was when I was being attacked by a dog and I could, didn't have the heart to shoot it. I just shot near it. Um, actually that's the story I tell the truth is I missed. So, um, uh, but you know, I mean, guys, guys go there, guys and gals go their entire career without ever, you know, squeezing off around anywhere, but the range, um, now physical confrontations, those happen more frequently, um, because some people don't want to be arrested. Some people run, some people fight. Um, but they don't happen anywhere near the frequency that I depict in the novels. Uh, uh, you know, people would be boring if they, you know, would be bored if they, if they didn't they did get the frequency the that they get. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, don't, in your reports at the end of your shift or whatever, don't you have to report if you pulled your gun or any kind of incident in which something like that's occurred? Some agencies require you to fill out a, a, a report if you draw your weapon, um, you know, obviously we had to write reports for any arrests or any contacts of that, mm-hmm. that, that we needed to, to, to write about. And if you use force, uh, above a very minimal level, essentially above, uh, the equivalent of a, of a joint lock control situation where you're arresting someone, if you use force beyond that, um, then, then they, uh, obviously it goes in your report, but also your boss, your sergeant is required to complete an administrative review of that use of force. It's called a use of force report. Uh, and that is submitted through internal affairs to the chain of command to that, be that reviewed. happens in the latest book. Yeah, it, it happens in, in the ride along. Um, and so that's an internal safeguard to make sure you don't have what you see in the movies and TV and, and in books. Sometimes, you know, some cop going around slapping people around and using force willy nilly, uh, you know, like that, which I love that show. Oh, that's a fantastic oh, yeah. show. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you know, law enforcement has safeguards yeah. in place that's to, true. to mitigate that and to, to address that and to catch it early. Um, yeah. So, so that's what would happen. So, yeah, I mean, that's what people don't realize about law enforcement among many things they don't realize the sheer amount of paperwork is not an exaggeration. Uh, you, you, you might work a 10 hour shift and four hours of that might be paperwork, you know, depending right. on the nature of the shift and everything, virtually everything is documented. Um, when I, when I was a kid, I'll make this real quick. When I was a kid, Aaron knows what my friend Ken, you know, we're all friends from back in high school. And, uh, but when I was really, before I even knew Aaron, Ken and I would hang out together. We were like 11 or 12 years old. And we went to, uh, down at the end of the street, there was a condemned old, warehouse that was close enough part of the factory it was like built into the hill so there was like a five foot jump from there to the top of the roof and he and i on one sunday we were down there just messing around climbing around on the roof and before we know it we hear these sirens pull up there's like four or five cruisers out there and we we look up and there's they're all holding guns they've got guns pointed on us 
and we're very um, in progress. Huh? Yeah. yeah, you guys yeah. were you guys were hardened criminals, right? So especially Phil being a little small for his age. Well, it didn't take up. it didn't take long for them to realize they weren't looking at the James gang here, you know. <laughs> so the, one officer, you know, we got mm-hmm. in the car with the officer, and he was trembling as he drove us home, yeah. and uh, in a very almost a. Uh, you know, not officious, not intimidating, but almost a very compassionate way, trying to explain to us how dangerous that situation was. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Apparently, somebody had broken into this building the previous week or something like that. He's, he's talking about how the the the, uh, the uh, roof was could collapse and you could fall Which through. Which, of course, probably stuff. just made you guys want to go back. And what what <laughs> I when I think back about it now is, I think the fact that they had drawn guns on two eleven year old kids. Was what really shook him up and made him. Oh, and you know, two, adrenaline. Adrenaline. Adrenaline, yeah. even if there isn't an emotional component, which I'm sure there are probably. I mean, what do you think, Frank? But I think cops, whenever they come into these situations, they, they, mm-hmm. they confront these situations all the time where there's uncertainty. They don't know how it's going to resolve, even just pulling somebody over on the road. Right. So there's a lot of uh, anxiety. Well, uncertainty is the key word there. I mean, you, you, you never know what you're walking into. You might think you do. And that's probably when it's the most dangerous because, you know, you make an assumption. And so, you know, people often are put off by cops because they're aloof or they're hyper vigilant or, or very uh, defensive, uh, both physically and or behaviorally. And, and it is off-putting. It's off-putting behavior. I mean, anybody, nobody would uh, disagree with that. But the reason they've learned those behaviors is, is, is as out of self-preservation, out of safety. You know, um, the 80-year-old woman that you stop is probably not going to be the one that's going to shoot you when you walk up to the window at, on a traffic stop. It's very unlikely. Um, it has happened, but it's very rare, right? But a lot of times when you make that stop, all you know is you're stopping a 19... 19- 84 Ford Tempo with what might be a female driver or a young, a younger driver is all you can tell. And you don't know till you get up to the window that it's, you know, a 74 year old grandmother on her way home from bingo or whatever. And so until you get to that window uh, and realize that where, where's your level of, of, um, of vigilance of concern. And, or if you want to call it anxiety, anxiety, um, that's the thing is, People argue whether policing is the hardest job in the, or the most dangerous job in the world or not. And statistics would say, no, it's not even in the top 10 in terms of injury and death on the job. I mean, loggers have it worse. Professional fishermen uh, and crabbers have it worse. Truck drivers, uh, you know, uh, maybe have it worse. I, I don't know what all the other 10 are, but, but often police officers aren't even in the top 10. But as Lee I point says, out, uh, trash collectors, trash collectors. Yeah, they, they are actually. Um, but. As I point out in the book you read, Aaron, um, uh, one of the characters makes the point that the thing about policing is that you're always in danger of being in danger. And it's not danger of a a, a machine that's, you know, dangerous. So you have to be careful around it. But when you go into the break room on your break, you know, as long as you don't choke on a peanut or something, you're pretty safe, right? For a police officer, he or she is in danger driving down the road going through, you know, a drive-through, stopping at a, a diner for lunch, walking into the grocery store on a shoplifting call, certainly going to somebody's house for any kind of call, domestic violence or 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 anything. And so that there's this low to mid-grade level of anxiety, if you will, that that's always there, tension that's always there. And people respond to it by 
hypervigilance and by, you know, uh, being what appears to be aloof and what appears to be paranoid to some people. Um, and those are the reasons for it, you know? And so I don't think it's the most dangerous job in the world, but it's, you're always in danger of being in danger, if that makes sense. Yeah. There was another scene in, um, uh, under a raging moon where mm-hmm. Katie, uh, McLeod, Officer McLeod and Chisholm responded to a domestic violence call. And not everything is all black and white. In, in this situation, the, um, the, the man actually struck the woman. There's, there was no, really no doubt about that. It happened, but Katie actually, um, had sympathy for the, for the, uh, culprit due because the, the woman was pushing, was pushing him. So she was a complete and total. She would antagonize him. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. She was a little bitch. Yeah. She was just a complete <laughs> asshole. Right. Which, which is out there. That does happen. Yeah. So, yeah. The law, just, the law doesn't really care if you're an asshole or not. The law cares right. about what you factually did. Right. And I've had to arrest people that I thought were okay people who made a mistake and the mistake that they made victimized someone who happened to be an asshole. And it's not a judgment that you get to make, you know, you have to enforce the law as it's currently written and interpreted. And so that was a perfect example that you picked up on there. You know, Katie knew she had to arrest the guy. It was clear they had probable cause and the law is very clear that it's a mandatory arrest in that situation. Um, and she doesn't think it's okay that he slapped her. I mean, she jokingly says she, she's kind of glad, but, but she doesn't mean it really. Uh, but, uh, you know, they have to arrest the guy. And then you have the uh, added complication that he's not exactly a small guy. <laughs> he's a pretty big dude. Right. Yeah. That, that, yeah. They got that, yeah he was, uh, so, um, towered now, over. Uh, a lot of the times, like on cops now, we see they're using the zip strips instead of handcuffs. Is that a universal thing these days? Or is that like um, place to place? Well, yeah, that that's a place to place thing. And I would hesitate to to answer definitively simply because I retired in 2013 mm-hmm. from Spokane. Right, and so right. at the time, zip strips were basically for uh, situations it's where you had got to arrest more people than you have cups. Yeah, group cups arrests. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Group arrests because you can zip tie them and then at jail, they can clip them and there's no issue with uh, getting your cuffs back or figuring out whose cuffs is, yeah, or whose yeah, or, right. or whatever. And, and all of that. Uh, that's a good question. It's something I'll have to look into as I write contemporarily to find out if I've, if I'm, if I'm becoming the old grandfather writer now and I'm out of the, I'm I'm out of what's, what's current. I'm uh, and I always kind of imagined that it wasn't like your cuffs, but like there's a box of cuffs as you leave the station and you just grab a couple. <laughs> no. no, your equipment uh, is your you equipment. Got your own. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all your equipment is your own equipment. I, mean, I can it's, see that with everything else, but the, the gun and maybe and, riot uh, gear or something. That's, right, right. Even that tended to be issued to the people on the on the on the TAC team on the riot control squad. Um, uh, there there were there were community helmets in the back of the cars um, for you to grab for civil disturbances if you if you you know, had to rush to something as a first responder, as a patrol officer um, to basically hold the line until the, the, the team could get there, you know, fully outfitted. Um, And helmet makes a big difference. I mean, you take a, you take a bottle, a glass bottle in the head with a helmet. It's a lot different than taking it on your head. So it it was a good tool to have in there, but of course it might not fit perfectly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, because I have a, 
the way my temples are situated on my particular head, I had to have like special helmets. <laughs> we had to find one that didn't cause me to have a headache. So, you know. Why don't we uh, take a break right here for okay. our sponsor, and when we come back, we'll let Aaron ask a few questions about okay. what he's read. Ooh, welcome back, listeners. Thank you for joining us again with uh, Frank Sapiro. Author of Under a Raging Moon, Backlist, uh, many more. <laughs> Very cool. Ride Along, coming soon. Oh, and Ride Along, coming soon. Yeah. Those are the books that we actually read. So, Aaron, you read the Ride Along already, right? I did, yeah. Finished it uh, about 30 minutes before the podcast began, so it's all really fresh. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Perfect. But maybe you got yeah. some input on that. I do. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was uh, basically the premise is there's a policeman that uh, is assigned a ride-along person for the evening. She's uh, with something called the PRI. Was that Imposed by the Department of Justice, I think maybe. Uh, that's a it's an it's made up, but it's oh, it's a, made up. Okay, it's it's like a little watchdog organization. Yes, community activist for the, group for the for overseeing the police activity, basically. And um, it's like you said earlier, it goes from point of view to point of view, and each chapter is uh, entitled but the name of the person whose point of view it's from is basically the chapter header or chapter title. Mm-hmm. To to quote the actual book, it points out how everything is seen uh, through the through the lens of our bias and that's you know knowing facts doesn't always pierce the biases especially if the ideas are entrenched and seemingly contrary evidence can even reinforce them so they're uh, basically seeing the same facts and different sides of the same story and you know, through throughout the night they start to see each other's side a little bit i wanted to know one thing Unrelated to all of that, did you know you uh, named someone after the bionic woman? <laughs> There's a character named Actually, yeah. Wagner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the this book is technically the fifth book in the Charlie three sixteen series mm-hmm. that I wrote with Colin Conway. But the first four books are an arc that follows the character of Tyler Garrett, and and he's involved in an officer involved shooting in the first book. I was, I was then, wondering if that was a real. Yeah, that's all person, part of this. But that's, that's fiction, right? Because yeah, it's all it's, fiction. Right? Nothing came up in Google. <laughs> yeah, it's all fiction. Part of that series, um, and and Colin is the one who came up with the idea, and he approached me and said, uh, you know, I've got this idea for this series. I want to write it, but I want to get into the upper echelon discussions and, and points of view as part of the process of what happens after this officer's involved in a, uh, a shooting with some questions afterward. And, you know, I, I was a captain when I retired and I was involved in those kinds of conversations and had those viewpoints. And, and while Colin was a police officer for five years, he had a different path. He was a patrol officer and he was involved in some other things, but uh, he hadn't promoted to leadership. So, and when he told me the story, I thought, this is awesome. Let's do it. Uh, We wrote the book. We realized the story wasn't over. And so we ended up writing four books to complete the arc. When I started writing the write along, I hadn't put it in any universe. I just had this sort of any town USA setting at the time. And, and as I went back and forth between the police officer Lee and the, the teacher and police reform activist uh, Melody, I, I was just having a little co- problem connecting with, with their place. The characters I was easy, it was easy to connect with, but their sense of place was tough. And so I started thinking about, well, I need to set this in a location where do I set it? And of course, Spokane was the easiest, right? Because that's where I set almost everything that I write on my own. And it's what I know. 
And, and then, I, but then I realized I already have too many versions of Spokane in my, in my catalog. You know, there's River City, the thinly veiled version of Spokane. There's versions of Spokane in, you know, of, in Sp- the Spokompton series. And, and I had several other books set in Spokane that ultimately I drew into the same universe as the Spokompton setting. Um, and it didn't fit in either one of those. You know, I mean, it was, it was too far in the future for me to, to put it in River City. I'm right now writing the eighth book and that's set in 2008. And I wanted to be today, you know, so mm-hmm. it was, it was not going to work. And Spokompton is, as, as Phil kind of alluded to, like in the bad guys, the other side of the badge, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what that series is about. It's the perspective of those, those folks. And while the cops aren't the bad guys necessarily, they aren't bad guys in that series, at least not all of them. That's how they're seen by the protagonist usually. Uh, so it didn't fit there either. I felt like if I put it there, I'd be making a, a comp- some commentary on policing in general. So I was kind of stuck. And then I realized the Charlie 316 universe was the perfect place to put it. Um, it had the Tyler Garrett incident and everything that followed as a scandal that would make people mad at the police locally. Um, because I didn't have a mad at the police locally in the first part of the first draft. It was all about the national stuff that was happening. Uh, this made it a local issue as well. And then it allowed me to bring in characters from the Charlie 316 universe to buttress the storytelling and to play roles that I was going to have to make brand new characters for uh, otherwise. And so that's a long way of answering your question to say that Lindsay Wagner is actually a character that pops up in the, in the second uh, book, uh, Never the Crime. Uh, he is a uh, mental health professional. Um, and there is a scene where the character, the police officer that's going, that ends up meeting him, um, is trying to remember, sees in the call on the computer that the mental health professional that he's supposed to meet with before they go talk to this client of his is named Liz, Lindsay Wagner. And he has a whole bunch of, oh, wow, you know, the bionic woman. I love that show. I was in love with her. What was her name? And he finally remembers it was Jamie Summers was the character's name. And then he gets there and it's a short dude with a beard. Yeah, so, so I missed I missed the I missed the lead-in jokes from the other books. Yeah, yeah, you caught the just, you caught the callback to the. I, I, I caught the callback. Uh, who's who's your who's your social worker, Lindsay <laughs> Wagner? I'm like, hey. <laughs> yeah, so that one was more for the uh, the series readers, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed it at any rate. <laughs> it's still a callback, even, if, even if I was right. Even if I wasn't the target, I still got a kick out. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. I Liked uh, the character of her husband too, and uh, his David? demeanor. Yeah, David, and his line: uh, "The anger is only any good if it jump starts you into doing something worthwhile. It's no good for dwelling on." Yeah, yeah, and and it was tough. You know, here I am. I, I'm a 53 year old, you know, white male, heterosexual. Um, you know, whatever other mainstream attachment you want to put to that. It's tricky to write characters who are outside of your demographic. And and especially if you're writing uh, another gender or another race, sometimes people take offense at that. They think maybe you don't have any place doing that. I don't agree. Obviously I wrote Katie McLeod is the core character of the river city series. I'm not a woman, but she's, I write her quite a bit. I felt the same way about David in that, you know, I, I wasn't trying to appropriate whatever, uh, the experience of the, uh, the black male is in, 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 in the United States. 
because I couldn't speak to that. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what that is at a meta level, but I was able to get into the head of a single character and wonder what perhaps his experience may have been like with all of these factors uh, weighed in and him being in the military, him living where he lived, him being married to a white woman, him, you know, uh, now flying an air for an airline. Um, and I tried to imagine those things that would resonate with him as best I could. And, um, and so I see him as one of those people who deeply understands what's going on, you know, in terms of bias against his race, but also uh, has a very productive view on how to hopefully fix it uh, and not exacerbate the, the issue. Uh, so I don't know if I did him justice or not, but uh, like with any character who's very different than yourself, you, you, you hope so. Sounds like he's right what you aimed for. Yeah. Um, my, my other thing I wanted to bring up was the idea of police always wearing masks. You have a mask at home with your family, you have a mask with your friends, you have a mask for like, I don't know, everywhere else, I guess. Is that, is that the case with you? Is that the case with all police? I, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a truism. I mean, as with anything, applying it generally is always dangerous. Everybody's different. Um, but we talked earlier about that whole, uh, you never know what you're going to walk into and, and, and being aloof and, and looking paranoid because you're being vigilant and all that. Um, masks is a part of that. Um, you know, sometimes you're dealing with a person who is a complete and utter terrible human being, but your duty at that moment is to serve them their needs anyway. And you have to put on a mask and be professional and not say what you think of them personally, but say what you're supposed to say, what you need to say to do your job professionally. And then you go to a different call that requires a different mask. And then you go to coffee and somebody walks up to your table to say, thank you for your service. And that's a different mask. And it's not like you're not showing your true self. It's a variation of your true self. Um, but, but you're a little bit protective about showing, you know, your more vulnerable self. And then you go home and you don't want to bring home any of the ugliness that you experienced on the job. Um, and so even with your family, then there is a bit of a mask that is in place. Even if you're, even with your spouse or your, your partner, there's a bit of a mask that, that is, that, that can be in place there. And so I think it was a fairly accurate depiction of, of, of how that particular phenomenon goes on in law enforcement. And it's not just the cops, dispatchers, you know, uh, medics, ER doctors. I mean, it's people who are in this kind of job, I think, all face this particular challenge. And for in, in the book, part of the problem, obviously, was that it made Melody, the, the, the woman who was riding along with the officer, question who the real person was and therefore what of what what I can believe from what he's saying. I mean, if, if, if he's putting all these masks on, that's in her mind, that was duplicitous therefore yeah. maybe he's being and duplicitous in what both both characters fathers were cops too was do you come from a line of cops i do not actually no i don't did you always but, want to be a police officer um kind of i mean I, I always wanted to be a writer that's how i kind of always thought of myself even as a 10 mm-hmm. year old kid right mm-hmm. but i figured out probably i don't know whenever you figure this kind of stuff out 13 14 whatever hey you can't just say I want to be a writer. And then somebody says, start sending you a check every week. And that's your job. You know, it's a different process and writing fiction is, is, is a very different process than a lot of careers. And I, so I figured out I, I needed a, a career, 
and I was going to have to earn my career as a writer on the side, essentially, while I did that. And, you know, there are probably three jobs I really thought about when I was younger. Being a police officer was one of them. I thought about being a lawyer briefly because I liked to argue when I was younger. Um, I probably still do more than I should. And, mm-hmm. and then a teacher. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a teacher. Um, and of the three, I mean, I became a cop and I, and I taught a lot. So I did two of them. But uh, kind of, lawyer kind of lost its luster for me in, in my early 20s. So I also like the way that you compared and, well, not really contrasted because the conclusion was they're almost exactly the same um, police and teachers. Yeah, you can thank my wife for that in, in a lot of ways. She is a teacher. In fact, she's a middle school teacher, which is why I, I chose to make Melody a middle school teacher because I could draw directly on her shared experiences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we actually had that conversation back in about 2009 or 2010. Um, we were childhood, childhood friends that ended up getting together and, and uh, coming back together as 40 year olds and getting married. I, I've been in love with her since I was 10 years old and never knew that she was feeling the same way. Aww. So a bit of a minor miracle. And after we got together, uh, I was watching The Wire. Uh, you mentioned that earlier. Uh, and I think I was on my first watch through. Might've been my second. Uh, no, it was my first watch through. And I was just starting the fourth season, which if you're familiar with the show, there's always the cops and then some other organization of some kind. Uh, you know, At the, the newspaper season? No, this was the the school district, the school, school season. Okay. Season. And so she started watching The Wire with that school season. And that really started the conversation as we were watching it, how accurately they depicted some of the frustrations and some of the difficulties in education. And then, you know, we went even further in discussing how similar our jobs were. And that was a conversation that just really resonated with me. And so 11 years later, when I was working on this book, I knew I needed to bring that into, into the equation because I didn't want people to think I thought, you know, cops were special in that they had these particular frustrations that those frustrations exist in, in many careers. Um, And so that's where that came from. You already mentioned uh, that it's, it involves an officer involved shooting, but uh, right up until that point, I, I thought it might go the other way. I thought, I thought that uh, Lee was going to get shot at that stairway. Yeah. Good. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, so there's still a little, you know, still some surprise there. I got the drop on you. <laughs> yeah, well done. Uh, it's that's, always that's, nice. That's, that's all my notes. But, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I was, I was, I, I'll give it, some, I'll give it probably five stars when it's on Goodreads. Oh, that's that's oh, wow. incredible. That's Thank you. Something. That's not automatic. I'm looking at Goodreads, and people seem to pride themselves on their reviews there because they're very. They're very uh, circumspect. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's not yeah, Goodreads dog. tends to be a little more. Um, a little more, the, the reviews tend to be a little more thoughtful and that, and Amazon is a little, you know, sometimes people just put a short little sentence on Amazon and that does the job. People go to Goodreads more when they want to explore a little further, like, yeah, all right, what is this book really about? Right. Yeah. So the back, you mentioned some things there talking about the ride along that struck me because they, there's uh, some of those themes carried over to the back list as well, which is the other book that I read. And then that, that book uh, takes the perspective of a crime organization, organized crime organization that actually has to um, start downsizing. 
the, you know, the business is getting. I'm you know, sorry, that's, that's just kind of funny. That's kind of hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of a spy versus spy type yeah. uh, theme when you, when you break it down. Mm-hmm. And your co-writer Eric Beatner took the task of writing the character of Cameron, who's one of the hitmen in competition to be the permanent hitman for the, for the organization. And you wrote the character of uh, Bricks, mm-hmm. who was a female. Right. And I thought it was interesting how, uh, like I said, there was a, a lot of action. Every chapter seemed to have a great deal of action. But I wonder, you know, writing that female character, what kind of challenges did that present for you? Well, it was, uh, I think it was the first female character I wrote in the first person. I had written, um, you know, by the third river city book, um, beneath the weeping sky, Katie McLeod has become the core of the river city series. And she, she, she remains as the core of the series as I work on book number eight. So I was comfortable writing female characters. Um, but writing it in the first person was a little intimidating because it's, it's more intimate. And I, I think the challenge is I'm not a, I'm not a woman. So there are some things I, I have to learn secondhand that a woman might experience. Giving birth is not something that I can imagine directly. Right. I mean, it's just not. Um, But most of what we experience has a degree of universality to it. You know, we're all human pain hurts. Love feels good. You know, heartbreak is heartbreak. Um, Anger is anger. Um, And, and while individual characters experience it differently, and perhaps there are differences uh, in the genders. I mean, we could argue that. I, I don't know how much of a difference there is. It's it's not as big of a leap, I don't think, as as you might think to jump into the the mind of a female character. Now, there are things that you know. I mean, I'm glad I have female readers, like beta readers, who can correct me and be like, uh, "No woman would ever do that." Like, you know, I mean, I had a scene in some book early on where, for whatever reason, a woman had to borrow underclothing and from another woman. And I don't know who it was that told me, but one, one of the women I knew that read it was like, eh, never going to happen. Not going to happen. They will go commando. And I was like, oh, okay. Would you borrow some guy's underwear? I'd be like, it was clean. I don't think I'd care. Would you? I mean, it's just clothing. I mean, I'd borrow if, a swimsuit. I mean, if what? it's clean, you might wear your husband's boxers. But, right, but would you? But yeah, but we wear your girlfriends I, though, you know. I, I, mean, I, I was told no. <laughs> underwear. I won't buy secondhand. Not even, not even uh, bras. No. Or now that's kind of a silly example that I'm giving, yeah. but right. no, but it's a good example. The point is, is there's that's female... like the one thing you can't return, too, isn't it? Usually, <laughs> yeah, you if you can't return it, I'm not wearing it uh, to somebody else. <laughs> right. no. uh, but for tough. the most part, we're talking about very human things, and so. I, I think what I did with Bricks, even though she's a very physical character and she's not afraid to engage in physical. Kind of a badass, yeah. She, well, she is, but, you know, she's learned some martial arts and she's not a ninja or anything crazy like that. But she yeah. has learned some martial arts um, to level the playing field a little bit. She isn't just, I'm a badass and I'm going to be a badass. I mean, she's actually taken some concrete steps to say, well, I'm smaller than most guys and I'm not as strong as most guys. So how can I level the playing field? Because I'm going to be a hitman. Yeah. And so she yeah. has. Um, so she's more physical than maybe some female characters might be. But the, but the biggest thing is just getting into her head and wondering what, what, would a, what would a person think in this situation? She shows some depth and compassion 
when she's assigned um, the target of Rooker. Oh, Zucker. Yeah. Zucker. Zucker. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's um, one of my favorite couple of scenes, actually, uh, in that yeah, scene. Definitely. That scene definitely stood out in that book, um, where she really, her compassion and her, uh, uh, for the first time, you really saw her face with a dilemma that touched, you know, touched her emotionally and she was about ready to risk it all. And he kind of understood that and took the decision out of her hands. So, yeah. Really good thing. I'm glad you like that because uh, that is one of one of my favorite scenes of mine in that series. And uh, and and again, it was you know I think people accept compassion from a female character a little more easily. Um, you know whether they should or not, whether that's right or not, that's another conversation. But I think the reality is that they tend to uh, a little bit. And so uh, that was that was a fun scene to write. It was it, it came it came pretty easily. I have a question for Frank and Phil. Um, Phil, when you used to deliver newspapers, how many of the cops did you know on the graveyard shift? Did they all stop and talk to you? Did they know you well? Because uh, in in the book, uh, at certain hours of the day, the only people you see are are bakers and newspaper delivery people. Right, and Phil right. did that for years. <laughs> Not a lot of stop and chats, but a lot of like wave at you, like, you know, how you doing? And, yeah. You know, uh, there was one time where my my uh, van broke down full of papers, and I had to w- hoof it to go get some. Uh, it didn't break down; I ran out of gas, so I had to hoof it to go get some gas. Uh. <laughs> by the time I come back, uh, Mark Rankin was there, and he had a tow truck, and we were getting ready to tow it. And Officer Rankin and I knew him from high school and stuff, and he kind of sighed. Like he did, you know, he really needed because he pulled his truck out. He really needed to follow through, but he he relented. He, he gave me a break and didn't tow my uh, didn't tow my van. Well, was it in a where, was it nice in a bad place? That. Yeah, it was in a bad place. It was over oh, okay. by a record theater. But okay, so it was in the parking lot. Yeah, not disturbing anyone. But uh-huh. right, yeah, it's, it's as good a place as you could have. No, it was yeah. on the street. It was on the oh. street. Was it, it a legal in... parking spot on the street? No. Okay. <laughs> he was justified in moving the van. I just didn't oh, get back okay. there in time. He gave me a break. So then yeah. there was there's Liz. Remember Liz? I didn't know her so much. Yeah. From, uh, I didn't know her so much from the papers, but I forgot about her. She would come into UDF. Now she's someone that I would talk to quite a bit, and that paid off the time that you and I and Mooney were down at Waterworks Park playing softball yeah. under the, um, the the lights in the parking lot. And she came down probably four or five times and never arrested us for being there after dark, after hours, but got pretty testy. But I feel like maybe my relationship with her from EDF might have paid off. Yeah. Well, I think her and uh, she and that one lady that worked at UDF used to sort of sexually harass me, too. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all see why people not, would not definitely name, harass you, Aaron. Hey, you're an attractive guy, Aaron. You have to be used <laughs> yeah, to it yeah. now, right? No, um, I mean, it, it was it, it was weird having having uh, God. What was that lady's name? Julie, I think so. Yeah, Julie yeah. and and Liz. And it's, it's weird. One of them's a cop, and they're you know trying you know telling me to come in the back room, and you know they want to grab my ass and all this. But you know, oh, wow. it's kind of yeah, yeah it's, it's, pretty, it's bizarre. That's pretty Randy. It was nuts. <laughs> yeah. Right, no, he yeah. said it was Liz and Julie, not Randy. Yeah, Randy, he he might have been there too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, I, that was your only uh, van police or yeah. your only newspaper police interaction oh, other than I, waves was. I did have a cop that wanted me to get commercial plates for my van. He was like 
adamant about it. And I guess really? he's like, you're doing a business out of this van. And he stopped me. It finally, he gave up. But I'd see him out there, and he, he brought it up more than once. Yeah. We had a word for guys like that. Mm-hmm. Assholes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, the thing about it is, is... Yeah. He's bored it, shitless out there at three in the morning, and you're the yeah, car on the road. there's always something better to do. I mean, right. when paperwork. I, I, I was buddy, I, I won't use his name because I don't know if he'd want me to, but, you know, I was, I went through the academy with a guy. And, um, his first name was Steve. I can say that. And Steve and I actually, Hey, wait, I know Steve. (laughs) You probably know several, but I don't think you know this one. Okay. Um, you got me. We, we ended up on opposite teams on graveyard. So we're working four tens. So one day a week we would be, we'd overlap. And so one day a week, both squads were on duty. It was always either Thursday, Friday, or Saturday on one of the busier nights. And we would ride together sometimes um, and, and go work together on those nights. And those were some of the funnest shifts I ever had. We were some productive patrol officers on those nights. We were running and gunning. But uh, I remember we were driving one time. He was driving and it was four o'clock in the morning, like Aaron just said. And there's nothing happening. And we've been all over the sector and into the hot areas and the cold areas. Nothing happened at all. And he'd be driving along and another car would come another way. And we'd be like, oh, car, maybe it's a bad guy. Maybe it's a suspended driver. Maybe he's got a warrant, maybe whatever. And he just, you could see him lean forward, you know, over the steering wheel and look as the car was going by and it'd be, you know, some, some woman wearing a waitress uniform on her way to the Denny's or something, or to coming home from the diner or whatever, or it'd be, you know, somebody headed in, in, you know, it was obviously a worker bee and he'd be like, Oh, worker bee. And he'd just keep going. And, you know, his attitude and I agreed with him was, you know, we're supposed to be kind of serving the public good here. And so, and there's a lot of discretion that's been granted to us. And so maybe we ought to focus on those things that are bad for the public good and not do things that aren't and not concern ourselves with those things that while technically maybe there's a legal issue we could look into. Maybe you should have commercial plates if you're delivering newspapers in your van. I don't know. seems like a stupid law that I wouldn't look up, but maybe so. I don't think there's a lot of value in stopping you and talking about that and, and, and bitching you off over it when I could be cruising through the neighborhood what's, that's been what's getting in it for the crawlers. What's in it for anybody? Really? Right, right. And it's yeah, just an right. opportunity to, to, you know, I mean, I get being bored and I get wanting to be busy. But there's so many more things you can do to be busy that are productive, that are focused, that are focused on real crime. I mean, there's an old yeah. phrase in in that guy's Frank Burns, man. Barney, yeah, it is a very Barney Frank Burns sort of things to do. You're, yeah. That's a very good word for Frank it. Burns. Uh, you know, people. You there's a phrase in law enforcement that's age old um, called RPW, re- real police work, and and it's not that kind of ticky tack crap. You know, that, that even if it is technically a violation, who really cares? I mean, if they, if they got in a crash and you were forced to investigate and it was something you had to put in the report or even cite them for, okay, then kind of your hands are tied at that point. But to go seek out those kinds of things, all it does is feed into that, you know, that stereotype that some people want to, you know, bang the drum of and say, you know, where's a cop when you need them? Don't you have something better to do? Well, yeah, you do. <laughs> then that, you know, I mean, unless you're the commercial vehicle enforcement officer for your department. Right. Unless that's, <laughs> unless that's your specific gig. Well, yeah. Then go, then, 
find a vehicle prowler, go, go have a cup of coffee and make the convenience store, or the diner where you're grabbing a cup of coffee, feel like they might not get robbed for the next 20 minutes, you know, or something. Yeah. And, and what you have to understand here, Frank, is that we don't actually live in Cincinnati and Philip was not working in Cincinnati. <laughs> we were in Norwood. Norwood is oh. nine square mile city. It's, it's Cincinnati's Vatican. Right. It's surrounded by Cincinnati. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. It's the largest incorporated city in the United States of America that is completely surrounded by another incorporated city. And so these police officers are actually Norwood police, and they have literally nine square miles. So he may have just been absolutely, you know, just bored out of his mind. (laughs) He was definitely (laughs) officious. He was was officious. You know, it's been so long ago. I think Frank I might have had a conversation time. with him yeah. about him with Liz, in fact, yeah. and she might have confirmed that yes, he's kind of a Frank. Yeah, know, Frank Burns. Yeah. <laughs> kind of kind like of Frank. That. So kind of, no, let's not turn people. that into a Karen thing. Forgot you're a Frank. A, girl named, a woman named Karen, and she is a Karen. I've got enough. Was. I've got enough problems being named Frank. I mean, and if you watch TV or movies or read books, Frank is always either a Frank Burns kind of character. Yeah. Um, or he's an asshole. I mean, how yeah. often you well, find Burns. me a Frank who's a hero? Very, very rare. I mean, John, lots of John heroes. Oh yeah, you know, uh, Mike, yeah. lots of Mike heroes. You know, uh, Aaron. There's a bunch of Aaron heroes out there. I guess there are. It's usually Frank either a right. or 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 he's uh, <laughs> you know or he's a bad guy. Yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright. Phil found one. Oh Frank yeah. Stop. Okay. How many how many action movies have starred some <laughs> biopic of Frank Lloyd Wright? Oh, that's, Frank Stallone. That's going to be a that's going to be a Michael Bay movie this summer, right? Frank Stallone, <laughs> but that might be worse. Oh, yeah, right. Actually, not a bad musician. Nice. Actually, though, there's a series he's in that's pretty good. It's yeah. a it's a loosely based on him and his friends, and it's actually not that bad. Well, we'll just use Barney instead. How about okay, Barney? Barney. Yeah, I didn't quite is think that, that, is that that much better though? Oh, or you got to use the full Frank Burns. Frank Burns works. Everybody knows Frank what that means. Yeah, Frank That's Burns. a good one. Yeah. I have a Frank Burns in River City. He's the internal affairs lieutenant. Yeah. He's a weasel, and in fact, he gets called officious. Uh, I think in, in screenwriting classes, they should they should have like the Frank Burns archetype. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Frank Burns was a genius. I played Frank Burns. Oh my god, Larry Lindell. So funny. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. But um. Yeah, or, I can't remember the guy's name at the. At the at I right think now. it's Larry Lindell. Yeah. Larry oh, Lindell. Yeah, yeah. Am I mixing him up with uh, Colonel? No, you're right. No, you got it. That's you, it. you got it. That's who it was. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it takes a special kind of comedian to, to come up to be an asshole. Yeah, we we've, we've been trying to uh, that, not so much. Was, Frank, we've been trying to cast Robert Duvall in the movie, Andy right? Griffith right. remake. And uh, uh, I'm I say that Frank Burns needs to be played by DJ Qualls. Um, but what do you say? You had somebody in mind. You have a Frank Burns in mind for the uh, Kevin Costner. I mean uh, uh, Andy Griffith. <laughs> Andy Griffith. <laughs> no, for Frank Burns. Oh yeah, no, I'm sorry, I, I switched to <laughs> genres. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he I'm got DJ Qualls and who? DJ Qualls was my. And pick. who was Phil Spick? Costner. Really? Kevin Costner. Okay. Costner yeah. as Frank Burns? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, Maybe Andy Griffith. We'll split the But difference. then we won't watch it. He picks who he picks. You don't get the vetoes. We'll split the difference and make it Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I can, you know what? I would love to see like a, a, 
they've they've done these like tributes to old shows recently, like Hollywood stars get together. And I think I would love to see a bunch of different uh, actors do Bonnie Fife. And I think he would be a very interesting Bonnie Fife. He could pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he is a decent actor. Yeah. Well, I just I gotta say, for, I want to talk about your podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I'll he's, just, he's, you got to be kind of funny looking to be Barney Fife. Yes, McConaughey is too traditionally handsome. They could they could make up. Right. They could do makeup with him. Look like Steve Buscemi. There I you go. Buscemi would be. He's he's a little old for it now, but he would have been exactly. a great Barney Fife. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah, he could do it. He could pull it off. Yeah, yeah. Not many men match the. DJ Qualls, I'm telling you. I don't know if you guys watch Z Nation. DJ Qualls is the Alaskan guy. I, I know him from other things, but I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's strange. Uh, for the new kid. He's, he's a really, he's he's a really, really thin yep. guy with sort of big head. Looks like yeah. a lollipop, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's kind of goofy and, you know. He, he's a yeah. good actor, though. Yeah, yeah. he is. All right, mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about the podcast, Frank's podcast. Apologies to DJ Qualls if he somehow stumbles over. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we totally admire you, and um, you know, love your work, man. I, I apologize, but you look kind of like a lollipop. Yeah. <laughs> well, he is. He is. He on probably our, he, knows. He subscribes. I yeah, think he, he gets knows. the newsletter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I've seen this kid. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. funny. Yeah. <laughs> Right? He does look oh, like yeah. a lollipop, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a very good description. Yeah. Frank's podcast is called Wrong Place, Right Time. And I tuned in for a couple of them. I, I, uh, to get a true cross uh, section, I listened to the first one, and then I listened to the most recent. And I really enjoyed the most recent one with Dan Bronson, who had yeah. worked on Godfather 3, uh, oh, wow. of a cheerleader had written 25 screenplays of which he had quite a few, um, put into production. Um, uh, just a kind of a, a uh, engaging person. Mm-hmm. It was really entertaining hour. Um, so how long, how long have you been doing the podcast, Frank? Um, well, first I got to tell you, I completely agree with you when it comes to Dan Bronson. And that was supposed to be about a 15 to 18 minute episode. And he had so many great stories. It ended up being like 40 minutes of the interview uh, because I couldn't cut anything. It was all just gold. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't, I, I didn't have the heart. It was just too good, too good. He actually is the the reader, the story editor who, uh, just, who took the uh, screenplay for Witness, the Harrison Ford movie off of the slush pile and championed it with the, the studio to get it made. And he, he says on the podcast that that it is the, the uh, only movie out of all the ones he recommended that was as good on the screen as it was as a screenplay. Which is um, really everything hard. Else, what's that? That can be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, go, then it goes a ton of changes and everything. And, and he was critical of some of those changes in other movies, but this one stayed very true. A uh, funny guy, very self-deprecating. I'm reading his book uh, via audio right now. Uh, his, his, his fiction novella, his fiction novel, I guess all novels are fiction. His noir novel, um, some, someone to watch over me. Um, if you like those stories that he told though, he wrote a book about that kind of stuff called Confessions of a Hollywood Nobody. And it's got just chock full oh. of these stories of, of, I've heard that book referenced before. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, yeah. I'm going to pick it up. I just, I'm right now I'm, I'm still doing the, the noir novel. Um, so that was my, 
my most recent episode. I think he was 149, I think, or so. Um, I started. If you, can't, if you can't be on the Godfather one or Godfather two, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I would encourage you to listen Godfather to the episode three because what he says about that is pretty inter- is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the whole Godfather three story is fascinating. Everything about the making of it and the choices that were made, right. but. Um, right. Yeah, as, as, as a final as a final product, not, uh, not the isn't best. Isn't it my understanding that they spoiled it for you? I mean, it, it's not the best. Well, that's that? not that's the the total of what uh, uh, revealed in uh, Frank's podcast. Uh, uh-huh. There's there's backstories about the casting uh-huh. and the yeah. conditions under which he got the, the job. You know, and, and even the story that was ultimately told was yeah. different when it got to the screen. Uh, it's it's well worth listening to if that interests you at all. He's got uh, a nice voice. I'm absolutely interested. He's a good in talker, um, good guy. I, I started Wrong Place, Right Crime back in 2017, 18. I don't know. Geez, I have to go look now. It's yeah. been years, obviously. Four or five years then. Um, and what happened was uh, my buddy that you mentioned, Phil, that I wrote uh, the uh, Bricks and Cam Job series with, Eric Beatner, he had a podcast, him and uh, S.W. Loudon had this podcast called writer types and it was like a morning drive sort of um, podcast, you know, light, lots of humor, lots of guests, short segments, um, varied sorts of segments, but it was all focused on uh, crime fiction, crime fiction, writers, reviews of books, all that kind of stuff. And Eric and Steve are funny guys. And Eric is an, as a, is an editor by trade. So the production value was really high. And I loved it and I thought it was great and they're having fun. I was like, I want to do that. That'd be fun as heck. But when I start thinking about how I could do that, I was like, I can't, I can't be funny like that. And I don't have a running partner either. So what do I do? And I thought, you know, I think I could go the other direction. I could be the podcast where, you know, you're driving your car late at night. It's rainy. You got two hours to get somewhere. You flip through the FM dial. You happen upon a conversation between two people and they're talking about, you know, rock formations in Hawaii. And you're like, what the hell is this? And then in a little while, they get back to the fact that the guy is a, this being interviewed writes crime fiction set in Hawaii. And then they talk about that for some more while. And it, just that deeper dive, let's really get to know the author and the work sort of uh, approach. And so that's what I did. And uh, my, my wife came up with the title. I was casting around for something and, and I was in the general vicinity, but I wasn't really that close to it. And then she said, well, what about wrong place, right crime as in, you know, right typewriter. Um, I was like, boom, there it is. That's it. And, and so a podcast was born. And so it's about an hour long for the first year or so. And I interviewed a lot of great people and I had a lot of fun, but I wasn't getting to interview enough people. Um, You know, I mean, it was one a month. And so I wanted to expand it but it was too much work to do an hour long episode once a month. I mean, I was doing all the editing and everything. So I decided to start doing these open and shut episodes that are about 20 minutes long with Mm -hmm. no other features, just intro, quick interview, outro. And that allowed me to start interviewing somebody every week and, and real, uh, really expand how many folks I got to talk to and, and open up opportunities for brand new writers and, you know, squeeze people in, squeeze in my friends when they had a new book come out or something and, and, uh, and so forth. And so that's kind of what it, where it's at right now, uh, a feature episode every month uh, in the middle of the month, uh, episodes drop on Wednesdays. And then the other weeks are the open and shut episodes, except when a Dan Bronson comes along and an 18 minute 
20 minute episode turns into a 42 minute episode because there's too much good stuff. Yeah, it is too much. Could have made it a two or three part. Sometimes our hour goes an hour and 20 minutes because we're enjoying talking to the person we're talking to. It always goes an a hour. A little more. <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, you've got the conversation after the, the recording stops. I'm trying to suck up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been great. It's, you know, it's, it's been a, a chance for me to talk to a lot of people that I might not have otherwise spoken to. Um, it gives me a chance to give back to the writing community, the, the, particularly the mystery community by promoting other people's work. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've got to interview some people that are kind of like above my pay grade too. I mean, I interviewed Steve Hamilton, I interviewed Walter Mosley, interviewed Christopher Moore, you know, interviewed Eric Van Lustbader, oh, wow. um, Jess Walter, which is kind of cheating because he's, he's from my hometown, but mm-hmm. you know, wow. these, these are some pretty big hitters who came on this little tiny niche podcast and sat with me for an hour and answered every question I had and were very gracious. Uh, and what I've discovered, I'm sure you have too in your podcast. So many people, when you get a chance to talk to them, they're just nice. You know, right. I mean, yeah. especially writers, they tend to be pretty nice people. And yeah. I've, I've done a hundred, uh, this next episode will be 150. And I'd say probably 148 people were awesome. And I would consider them friends now. And maybe one was a little bit distant and one was kind of an asshole. You know, and that's about it, right? And those are pretty good odds. I'd, I'd say uh, you know. I can't say enough how our guests, our guests have been like, like Frank said, yeah. our guests have been almost to a person. Mm-hmm. Have been extremely nice. Yeah, it's been a great experience. That's yeah. why we keep doing it, right? Because it's so much fun. Uh-huh. You know, it's just fun to, yeah. to get different people's perspectives on stuff. And that's yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's been a, a, an excellent hour and twenty minutes. And, hour and twenty-five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and but let's go ahead and wind down here. Yep. Lisa, do you yeah. have any final questions for Frank? Well, I always do have a final question with every podcast. Um, is there anything that and, and Philip will be uh addressing socials at the you know, we, we end with socials. But uh uh is there anything Plugs. that we didn't ask you about that you you that you expect to be asked about or that you particularly want to be asked about? Uh, no, I think you did a really good job uh, covering stuff. And I, I you know, I, whenever I hear that question, I always think, uh, you know, if it didn't come up in conversation, then we'll talk about it some other time, some other place, you know, so I, I think you did a great job. Thank you. You too. Yeah. <laughs> about you, Aaron? Um, no, I, I enjoyed myself. I don't really have any final questions that I can think of. So good luck with the book. Thank you. With, with all the books, I suppose. Yeah. All this, you have three active series right now. Uh, no, I have, um, at least three, so I, I think six. I've <laughs> six got active series going. Wow. Yeah. There's river city. And then there's the Copriva mystery series, which is kind of a spinoff. Um, and then there's the Spocompton series that I mentioned, the Charlie three sixteen series, um, the Jack McCray mysteries, Sandy Banks thrillers, and then the backlist, the Burkes and cam job series. And then the, uh, Anya trilogy, which is actually four books because there's a prequel. Um, so I don't know. I lost count while I was talking. I'm sorry. Seven. <laughs> Some of those are no longer active. The Brooks and okay. Cam is a closed series. The Anya series is a closed series. It's done. So, so eight counting the inactive. Yeah. yeah six, some of them are open. six active, two inactive, I guess. That's close enough, man. That it definitely is probably, probably close. It's pretty prolific. Congratulations. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to really ramp up my, my output. And so I'm, I'm working a lot of hours and, and uh, pulling back on other uh, commitments to be able to focus on getting words on paper. 
and it comes so out May. Uh, the ride along comes out May sixth. Sixth. Um, I've got a third Spokompton book coming out on March thirty first, yeah. and a couple other smaller releases, a novella and a, an yeah. anthology. But that's the Seis de Mayo. Is that right? What's that? Seis de Mayo. Seis de Mayo. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, hopefully people won't be too hungover from Cinco to uh, decide to pick it to up. Buy the book. <laughs> Might, they might not pick it up till the ninth. <laughs> so speaking of buying a book, do you have any uh, socials you want to, uh, you know, websites, Facebook, Instagram? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, my, my website's really simple. It's franksafero.com. And, uh, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I guess I'm actually on Pinterest too, but I haven't delved into being active on that. Uh, but, but those other three, I'm there quite a bit. Um, uh, well, that's not necessarily true. I'm there daily. So uh, I can be reached through any of those uh, venues and, um, you know, news. I always post news on. on At Frank Scalise and all of them? or Uh, No, Frank underscore Zafiro is the. uh, That's okay. Um, That's that's the Twitter one. And I I mean, if you type in Frank Zafiro on any of those three, it'll it'll pop up. Yeah. All right, Frank. Well, it's been a lively lively time yeah. i really enjoyed it I, I anticipate reading some more of your work and maybe having you back on again sometime so okay and uh listeners the Firo is spelled v-a-f-i-r-o right. Right. thank you have a great yeah day. thanks for having me it's been great yeah nice to meet you thanks lisa thanks phil thanks Aaron. thank you thanks bye everybody we have social twitter yeah uh-huh pod instagram yeah uh-huh pod facebook yeah uh-huh pod website www.yeah-uh-huh.com so let us know hit us back have a great week